Welcome to Night Light. Step away from the mainstream and gather around as we enlighten the world and our realities and travel this cosmic journey we call life. Join us as we share with you and provide that beacon that can guide us all to a better way. Explore with us as we examine a metaphysical montage of spiritual insights covering everything from the mundane to the magical, UFOs to unicorns, and everything in between. This is a time of awakening, of sharing and evolving, of spreading our wings and soaring on the cosmic breath of creation. Come and join with other light-minded spirits as we weave our lights together to seek understanding, enlightenment, and with a little luck, some wisdom. This is Nightlight, a reminder that you are never alone. Welcome everybody to Nightlight. So glad you could be here and spend time with us. We're really excited about tonight's show. First of all, I do though want to thank Ken Quiethawk for his amazing intro. Please find him on um, on Google, Google him and learn about his native storytelling and the, how he and his wife have helped to preserve history in, a, in an unusual way that, that uh, is older than time itself. It's uh, an amazing story, and it's worth listening to. Tonight, Mark has some amazing people here, so I want you to sit back, take your shoes off, put your feet up, and enjoy all the strange, weird, and wonderful things this group of people is going to talk about. Um, And then, you know, at, at the end of the evening, I'm sure you're going to be not only enlightened, a little confused, but definitely entertained. So, Mark? I can find you here. Mark, welcome to the show. It's all yours. Thanks. Uh, How how are you faring? Doing well, thank you. Okay. Um, And we've had this show booked for about two months, and what we were planning on discussing has been uh, postponed like so many other things, but... um, yeah, uh, we've made some adjustments, and we're still going to have a uh, great time, anyways. Um, and we're helping to flatten the virus curve, but uh, we're shooting for a IQ spike with our two guests. Uh, so we're defying the mandated six-foot social distancing, um, and we're having more than ten people congregate, but we can do that on radio. And we're doing that just for our friends in Arlington, Texas. Um, anyhow, the hostess for just another tinfoil hat, Zulia Edgar, is returning, as well as the walking encyclopedia of all things weird. Steve Switchblade Ward is returning as well. You know, you know him as the host of the High Strangeness Factor and the correspondent for Mac Maloney's Military X-Files. And, you know, Bart, 
Barbara rescheduled last night's show with burnt rains to Friday from 9 to 11 Eastern uh, time, uh, 9 to 11 at night uh, Eastern time. Uh, it kind of sounds like the uh, Monterey uh, Pop Festival where the Who and Jimi Hendrix uh, argued with the uh, producers about, you know, I, I don't open, I close the show, and I'm not going on before them. So, uh, you know, f- f- figures, you know, Brent is somehow involved in 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 this rescheduling thing. So we'll we'll see who puts on a better act. But uh, yeah, hi, hi Zelia and Steve. Th- thanks for returning to Nightlight. Oh yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much for having me back. Oh yeah. Yeah, it's great yeah. to be back. Now, did you say IQ spike in your uh, intro there, Mark? Um. Yeah. That's okay. Well, that, well that's, Julia, that's on you. That's I was. <laughs> yeah, I was tested. You know, oh you're, boy, not, you're not dealing pressure. with a chimp or anything like that. But I think the the load's on Zelia. So. <laughs> oh boy. Okay. No, uh, no pressure, Zelia. <laughs> 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 but, 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 you know when, and we've had you on uh, s- separately, but not as a uh, panel of experts, but. But uh, uh, you know, when when we did the other shows, you know, you know we did cover a lot of the flying humanoids. Um, but I thought maybe tonight we could start off by some of the other uh, possibly human characters that have been overlooked. Uh, players in ufology. Uh, there is the example of Tiny from the Mothman Prophecies, uh, you know, John Keel's book. Um, okay, Zeus, since uh, this might be one of your um, areas of expertise to uh, raise our IQs. Uh, can, can you tell us a little bit about Tiny and is he an isolated case or is uh, he's a character that is found fairly common in the UFO literature? I would say that the case of Tiny, which I have to say I absolutely love this particular case, is kind of like um, a pinnacle uh, Men in Black encounter. And simply because of how absolutely bizarre it is. And so, well, the story goes that in January of 1967, um, a family by the name of Christensen returned to their absolutely new home in Wildwood, New Jersey. Um, They had just moved there, and there was no phone number listed or anything and um, they were returning from a trip to Florida. And so they get home, and they're actually, like, getting ready for dinner when someone knocks on the door. And here it's this man. He's about six feet, six inches tall, um, really just a broad, tall guy wearing a fur Russian-style hat with a black visor and a really long black coat that seemed to be made of some really weird, thin material. He also had these, like... um, 
really thick-soled, rubber-looking shoes. And so from that description, you know, something that I'm really intrigued by in the paranormal is actually the clothing that a lot of these different entities wear. And the men in black are no exception. They always have these just kind of bizarre outfits. And it actually gets weirder. He proceeds to tell the family that um, the man of the household, Edward Christensen, the husband, um, may be due to receive some money. And this guy is a missing heir investigator, and he you know, would like to speak to them for approximately 40 minutes. He was very particular on that point. And so over the course of the conversation, which, and this is really classic Men in Black stuff, it was all about uh, Scott, what scars Edward Christensen had, birthmarks, what schools he had attended, what vehicles he had driven in. Throughout the course of this conversation, the man's pant leg kind of rode up his leg, and the daughter, Connie, who was 17 at the time, noticed that he had a green wire, which ran from his sock up into his pant leg. And again, it's just one of those little details that just is so weird and so out there, you know, and I really love about this phenomenon. Mm-hmm. So, Yeah, uh, that yeah, one is, is, is creepy. Yeah. And well, and she would just... Oh, go on. Sorry. Oh, I, I, I was just going to say, uh, Mary Heyer had someone coming into her office <clears throat> as well that was the the, the uh, guy just really seemed very awkward dealing with people. Yeah, so many of these encounters, you know, in in a lot of them, because the Christensen family had had um, a UFO sighting that previous November at a different house, which is really interesting to note, um, a lot of these men in black kind of lines of questioning, they appear to be very nonsensical, and usually they do circle in even more sometimes than the UFO or cryptid encounter, because the men in black do show up sometimes after cryptids too. Um, they do kind of circle in on the witnesses, Instead, you know, and they're very particular on personal history and family history and things like that. Um, Even like medical data is something that they seem to be very particular about. But other than that, sometimes their conversations are, like you're mentioning, very awkward, very nonsensical. They kind of, they contradict themselves. I know there's so many cases like that, even just in the Mothman prophecies, where one of these guys shows up and says, you know, I think one example is that... um, one showed up at the house of a witness and said that he didn't know John Keel. And then, like 20 minutes later in the conversation, says that they're great friends. So there is this kind of just runaround, um, really just bizarre sort of line of reasoning that they use when they talk to witnesses. Yeah, and Keel spoke about he, uh, Tiny was... Uh, <clears throat> able to calm the dog down with, you know, a stranger being in the house. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, you know, the people were uh, put off by his, uh, how do we call it, adroitness. It, it, it's just very interesting how these uh Men and black characters are just kind of fo- focus on the dog. Uh, not you know, they they can't really deal with people. Uh, th- th- that pattern just seems to keep 
re- reappearing from other stories, but the uh, wire is something very unique. Yeah, the wire is just a very strange little point there. And you know, the interesting thing, too, I saw somewhere actually a letter that Keel wrote about this incident to Ivan Sanderson, and it included even more details that um, apparently, I believe it was this incident, it may have been um, another one, too, but I think it was the one with Tiny. He actually recited a long, strange poem at some point during um, the exchange. And, you know, again, just details like that, there is just so much, it's not even you know, your normal run-of-the-mill weirdness. It's like advanced weirdness involved in these sightings. And That's correct. Yeah. It was the same one. Okay, yeah. I thought it was same like... Same. But, and yeah, the interesting thing with this one, too, is that, you know, so many times promises were made to the witnesses, especially with the men in black, that there would be some sort of, like, follow-up call because, you know, these guys used all sorts of different ploys, you know, to get into the house and to talk to these people. And, you know, some of them were like, um, of course, you have the phantom meter readers, you have the phantom photographers, all these almost mm-hmm. business schemes with a promise to get back with the product or the information at some point. Usually that never really followed through. In the case of Tiny, however, and his claim to be a missing air investigator, apparently, um, I think it was the next week, um, their family did receive a call that, you know, they weren't due to receive any money. So that's an interesting facet of this case as well. When you know, you're up there in the uh, upper Midwest, uh, you know, since, you know, just kind of uh, getting started on the flying humanoids. You know, we've covered uh, Mothman, the Van Meter uh, visitor. Uh, you know, people have been talking about this uh, Michigan Mothman. What is the the situation going on with th- this new um, cryptid? Are you talking about the kind of spillover from Chicago, that that region? I guess yes. I'm not really. Yeah. Okay. I. Uh, uh, may, may I say a couple things about Tiny before we get to that? Oh, sure. sure, sure. Um, Okay. Uh, yeah, it's it, it's right. It's very intriguing about this. Uh, it almost like the white, like the wire was coming. I think there was kind of a spot on his skin. It almost looked like like the wire was coming out of him. So I want to know: was he wired to you know two twenty or four forty? You know, maybe you shouldn't uh, shake his hand. You might get one of those buzzer things. But uh, very interesting that the Russian style hat. There's a if you go back to some of the old airship reports, uh, some really crazy <laughs> ones in England. I think around what 1917 maybe they would have these uh, like airships with the undercarriage. They would see, and this is before Zeppelins really took over. Uh, they would see these strange looking men that looked like they were wearing Russian hats. I don't remember if they had visors or not, but they were talking in. They seemed like guttural German or something. Uh, just stuff that didn't make any sense. The technology shouldn't have been there. They didn't know, you know, who it was from. The garment he was wearing, tiny, was very kind of thin, and not really a, very cold outside. I think one of Mary Heyer's visitors had the same thing, where he wasn't really dressed for outdoors. 
Indrid Cole, the infamous uh, sort of a man in black type that uh, supposedly conversed with uh, Woodrow Derenberger, had the same thing. So you get these crazy patterns. Uh, we have to be careful because we know there are hoaxes interspaced with a lot of this stuff. And, uh, you know, so we, we never know. For, we have to suspend our judgment on a lot of things. But the reason, you know, Keel thought he was by pure, it was by pure happenstance that he found out that the, uh, the family uh, was having all these experiences. And it was because he had this, uh, his catchphrase was, ask the experiencer what they had for breakfast, which simply meant find out about the individual. Don't just find out about their UFO sighting. And I found the same thing in my limited investigation with people that have had abduction experiences. That's not the only thing that's happened. They experience uh, shadow people, strange phone calls, uh, strange visitors, uh, and so forth. So if you ask the, the, the questions. Uh, uh, anyway, about the, I'm very skeptical about the, I guess they're, they're mostly calling it the Chicago Mothman, although the sightings are all over the place. Uh, uh, someone that uh, is also connected with the Van Meter Visitor Festival, Alison Jornlin. She and another lady, Kim Poppy, have done some great research. They have actually, they actually went to the different sighting locations all over Chicago uh, about a year or two ago, and uh, they compared notes with the description of the areas and so forth. A lot of the sightings didn't match up. You know, if you're going to make up a story, you don't get the description of the area quite right. They found a lot of that there. Also, I understand from some credible people that the, some of the original reports that came in about the Chicago Mothman came into MUFON, and there were like small groupings of them coming from the same IP address. So uh, now Allison did think there may be some credibility to some of the sightings. Some of the people were credible. And uh, I think most of it I'm very, very dubious about. And I wonder if, if we're not dealing with something, you know, if some are in fact real, and, and some are not. I just wonder, I'm going to throw this out there, that perhaps we're dealing with another Slender Man scenario where somebody starts out with a fabrication and then becomes uh, real to some degree. And when I say real, I, I don't mean necessarily physically real, but something more in the way of an apparition. So I, and I am not, uh, the, the lady that uh, you really want to talk to on that would be Allison Jornlin. Now, Azealia may have done more research than I have, but I'm just, uh, I'm, I'm just very, very hesitant to jump on many of the Chicago Mothman sightings. It, it, Steve, it almost sounds like you're uh, saying that the the Chicago Mothman is almost like uh, uh, that, that uh, like a, ancient Greek term agories, where like a group of people think it and it you know what what kind of, like manifests itself. The, the only reason is that uh, when Allison went through and she found most of the sightings she thought were dubious for one reason or another, she did say she came across a couple where the individuals seemed credible and it, it, like they may have really experienced something. If it wasn't mm-hmm. for her finding that, I would just write the whole thing off. And this is, this is just pure speculation. I have, I have no idea. I, I just think that... Uh, yeah, I, w- I, I would not personally do spend much time on the uh, on the Chicago Mothman thing, and uh, we can thank Allison and uh, and uh, Kim Poppy, who again they really uh, they, they told tell a great they told a great story a couple of years ago at the Mothman Festival, 
about uh, they were, went through tunnels to get to one place from another, and there's these big spiders hanging down. So they really they risked life and limb and their and their precious bodily fluids to get through uh, spiders and and spider webs and everything to uh, find out the truth about the uh, Chicago Mothman. Okay. So now there are other people. I think uh, what's his name? Tobias. Uh, I'm going to lose his name here. There oh, are other people Tobias that Whelan? disagree. Yes. Yes. And so, you know, there are other people who have done a lot more research and will disagree with me. Uh, so, you know, I'm, this is just uh, one man's opinion, and I, I'm, I'm relying uh, mostly on some other people's research in my, my ideas. Okay. So, and do, do, do you think Tiny was a human or part android um that you know that just kind of adds a new <clears throat> uh, facet to these characters that are showing up in the literature it, it is so strange he had even had uh, Zelia didn't he have some kind of a a badge on that looked like it had Greek letters on it that he hid when he came in. Yeah. And it, 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 yeah, it's almost it was... like it was staged, you know, it's like, mm-hmm. we're, we're going to show this badge. Oh, we're going to hide it. I, I, I do wonder, you know, there was something I read somewhere where somebody thought that it was, that it was something that was kind of staged or a prank or something. I, I don't know. We it have to be very, you know, we, we, it's so difficult to, to sift through this stuff. I think that while there have been some real, uh, even even Dr. Hynek, Dr. Jalen Hynek, uh, talked to people where they were approached by individuals, uh, sometimes very human-like uh, individuals dressed in black or seemingly to be government officials, telling them to be quiet about their UFO site. So that, I mean, there's and there's been some really there's some really odd ones that uh, uh, there was that one Dr. Hopkins in Maine and uh, Jenny Randalls in England uh, uncovered some very very strange men in black situations. But I wouldn't be surprised if uh, the government has uh, staged things in the past. Even recently, Nick Redfern uh, published some things about uh, suggesting that uh, perhaps the CIA uh, staged some of the UFO encounters in South America years ago. Uh, I I would not be surprised if they even staged some men in black encounters and – I, I wonder why why would they do this? You know, why would they stage UFO events? Why would they stage men in black events? It seems like they they create all kinds of programs sometimes to see if they can manipulate uh, people, uh, you know, test the limits of their belief, and uh, then sometimes they just forget about the program. It doesn't exist anymore. Uh, I would not be surprised if some of and I say stress some of the UFO encounters of the past and even present were staged events by uh, our government, maybe even other governments, I don't know. And they may have done hundreds of them, and most of them never even surfaced. But every once in a while, we get a a UFO report or an encounter by someone that uh, talks about an experience they had decades ago, but it may have actually been manipulated. I suspect that some may be mixed in with what I would call the real experiences. And how the heck we, if, if I'm right, how the heck we can sift through those, I don't know. Determine what's true and what's not. 
how, how do do you and Zelia get you know uh, right to some bureau in Washington to get reports on things like this? And I know some authors have, and you know they actually get. Uh, Files, parts of them are, are redacted. But you know, have you done uh, information, uh, gathered information through means the like freedom that? of information? Yes, I, I have not. Uh, Nick Redfern has done a phenomenal job. A lot of his books mm. are filled with that kind of information. But no, I, I have not, and I, there's no excuse for it because uh, another great uh, researcher, John Tinney. Uh, uh, has done a lot of that. He's had some really, really huge breakthroughs. He's also, uh, uh, he's been writing, uh, he hasn't got it published yet. He's writing a children's book to talk about the Joe Simonton case, you know, the, the cosmic pancakes oh from outer space. And at the very end oh, of it, awesome. he's showing children how to access freedom of information and what kind of language to use. Because if you use the improper language, you won't get what you want. But uh, so I, 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 wow. I must admit I have not done that. Yeah, that's a, that's going to be a, a killer book when it comes out. A, a children's book I can't wait to read. What are some of his suggestions of using words? You know, we have people in the audience who hopefully are. Uh, Researching and writing, uh, and it is important to use, uh, you know, good, strong words. You know, you know, get get your point across. What is, is there a sample of how to approach someone? Uh, you know, without I, I I don't recall exactly. I know that he's he's talked about it in his lectures, and I really can't give you a good answer. It's just that if you if you're not precise in what you want, mm -hmm. uh, they can just they just ignore it. And one thing, and I I, I can't uh, I won't belabor the story because I can't uh, I don't remember the details. But you know the Kinross incident, where the uh, the, the the plane or the jet uh, collided with the UFO or came together on radar and the, mm -hmm. the pilot disappeared mm -hmm. over Michigan. Yeah, yeah, that was in Michigan, yeah. right? Right. Yes. Uh, well, John Tinney, he did something so sneaky. He got, uh, he was trying to get information on that event, but it was all, you know, locked up and, uh, and, and redacted. But he did some kind of, you, you'll have to get him on and listen to his, his wording. He did something very clever, and he got all the information on Kinross. And the upshot was the guy's widow had never gotten any kind of a, pension or anything or, or payoff because they said that, you know, he wasn't actually listed as dead, her husband, the pilot. And so he changed all that. He got her the money. And also the, uh, where he's buried, the little cemetery where he's buried, he got a plaque put up that this particular man, and I, I again, I, I don't remember the details, that this man uh, uh, encountered uh, something like aliens from outer, protected the the earth from aliens from outer space and that's on his tombstone so oh, wow. plus this lady got got the back pay it's a phenomenal story and I'm, I'm not doing it any justice 
I think when Ron Rademacher was our guest, he spoke a little bit about that. Um, you know, we're going to have to d- develop that topic. Uh, uh, it keeps coming up. It, it, it seems like there's a, a lot more to the, that story than what we've d- discussed on Nightlight. But, you know, we're, I mean, I'm intrigued by this now. I, I think if you look at, if you go to John Tenney's website, John, uh, T-E-N-N-E-Y, uh, weirdlectures.com, I'm sure it's written up in there somewhere. The, and, uh, you know, you don't have to listen to my very poor rendition of uh, what happened. Interesting. I'm trying to check cool. it right now, see if I can. Okay. Well, so, Zulia, while... Steve is perusing Yes, okay. Just, all you do is look for the, the Kinross documents, John Tenney, and you can get the details. Cool. Okay. He's got PDFs and all kinds. Yeah, he's, he's really good. He's a, he's a master at, like, like, like Nick Redfern, of uh, gathering uh, Freedom of Information files. Okay. Well, it's uh, <clears throat> right there. In the uh, Constitution, we have that right to do it. Yes. Uh, oh, okay. Um, all right, since you know we're talking about uh, you know, the farmland, uh, vast ex- uh, expanses of <clears throat> farmland in. Um, Michigan, Wisconsin. Um, you know, ha- have you seen much ab- uh, about crop circles recently, or you know, have have they not happened in the last couple of years? Uh, probably, you know, not now. Uh, you know, they probably aren't uh, uh, forming, but. You know, have you encountered this phenomenon? Uh, you know, any time over the last uh, few years. I haven't. Uh, this way, what about you, Zelia? Anything uh, of note happen around Wisconsin? No, unfortunately, I've never um, heard of a crop circle that's happened like within the last couple of years near me, at least. I know that Wisconsin does have a you know, history of them every now and again, but, yeah, nothing I've been able to actually see firsthand. It doesn't seem like uh, there's been a, I mean, uh, we, we may have just been missing the reports. Uh, I remember the one, uh, there was one that uh, was right near the Ohio Serpent Mound across the uh, the street mm-hmm. from it, but that's got to be a good decade or more uh, ago. Um, but, yeah, it doesn't I seem think... like, uh, I've not heard much recently. I I I, I think it's, more recently than that, and it, it, it may could be. Happened. I was thinking. I'm thinking 2004, but I I don't know that it could be wrong. It seems like uh, that there have been a few crop circles reported in that vicinity recently, and you know we did, did a show 
maybe about last May on some of the British crop circles. I, I just thought it was really uh, a very intriguing subject about their formations. Uh, do, do you have an idea of how they're formed? When? Well, why? If you go back, uh, as I mentioned, I, I think off air, I used to kind of sneer at this. I I remember uh, when we had had crop circles coming up around the turn of the century, roughly, uh, you know, 1999, 2000, and uh, they were happening in England quite a bit. And you had the uh, the infamous Doug and Dave come out and say they'd made a bunch of them. So, of course, uh, everything was explained by Doug and Dave. Um uh, it, it, it's actually incredibly complicated. Um, uh, but, but, but I did read a book by uh, Dr. Simeon Hine on uh, it was called uh, Opening Open Opening Minds, and he talked about how uh, there are people. I even knew a lady that went to England, and people would get together under cover of darkness with their boys and so forth. It was all planned out, and they would make these incredible formations uh, overnight, and people would think that they hadn't, you know, they were the aliens. Uh, however, okay, let me give you a really good example here. About 1999, the London Daily Mail hired a group of, of circle makers because they wanted to prove that, you know, it was just all man-made. So under cover of darkness, they made the uh, – it was the Avberry Cubes, and uh, they, they looked like uh, three-dimensional cubes, you know, if you were to draw one out. And they did it overnight, and there were even uh, crop circle researchers in the general vicinity. Nobody heard or saw anything. So, you know, they were, the London Daily Mail thought, well, we've got this. You know, we've, we've de- demonstrated that they're fake. But one of the guys admitted to them that they had seen uh, a, a strange light moving around when they were making it. And they even said when they had done some before, because they were kind of expert circle makers, they had seen some of the phenomena. And then, uh, I, I won't belabor this, but it, it goes the other way, too. People have... Uh, there was a 77 in Uruguay, a farmer, saw this sort of a Saturn-like craft come down, uh, shot some beams of light or whatever, formed a crop circle. The animals reacted to it. The dog ran up to it and then stopped and then died later, got, got sick or whatever. Something really physical was going on. You have situations where people have seen lights or apparently craft or something forming some of the formations in Holland and Uruguay and so forth. You have other situations where circle makers, sometimes they even stopped because they were making their planned uh, crop circle formation, and then they started seeing balls of light moving around. Some have even been captured on film. There was one, um, oh, come on, the uh, uh, Milk Milk Hill, I think it was, in England. In the daytime, they caught this kind of a light or orb moving around. Some people said, well, it's a a barn owl, a barn owl, a reflecting uh, light. But then it turned out that when Simeon Hine checked, it, was, it actually passed over a tractor. The tractor stopped, like the cars do with UFOs. And when it moved away, it started again. Uh, and then you can go to uh, back in, uh, there was a case in 35 and 27. One of them, they, they, this guy saw the circle form. They called them double circles. He told his buddy what happened. He said, oh, don't, don't worry about that. That happens all the time. And there was no whirlwind or anything like that. There was another case where a guy, they would call him witch rings. He saw it. I saw one. He, uh, his compass went haywire in it. 
he put his knife blade in the soil. It magnetized it. His dog wouldn't go into it, even though he called it. This is back in the 30s, 20s and 30s. Sounds very similar to uh, Whitley Strieber talking about stepping into a modern-day crop circle. People feel drained and so forth. So I don't know what the heck is going on, but it's, it's like both sides. You see, it's it almost like the people forming the crop circles are either perhaps generating the phenomena or perhaps attracting it to it. Um, but there's other forces that, that seem to be making it. And, uh, you know, some people say, well, it's, it's uh, uh, you know, radar, satellite technology, the government's doing it, it's aliens, it's people, and it's just one of these things that just, uh, it's very hard to sort out. And you know, when we did the Crop Circle show last year, uh, Lucy Pringle was talking about uh, natural forces uh, 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 creating them as well. And it's like uh, wind energy uh, coming out of the earth to make make the patterns. It, 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 it really is a captivating subject. And just one last thing. Uh, uh, there was a lady... Uh, it was moved during, uh, you know, in London, World War II, during the Blitz. Some children were moved out in the country. Well, she went to an area where they would find these circles all over the place. And they were just, uh, they'd had, they sensed that they should keep away from them and not go into them. And in the same area, in the forest, they would see these strange lights, these orbs moving uh, back and forth uh, around behind the trees. So it's, it's quite a mystery. Um, and I, I don't know. It's just not that easy to sort out. For a while, I, was, I thought, well, look, most of these are simply man-made, and many of them are. Even the very complex ones are, are just uh, they're really miraculous, and, uh, but uh, it's, it remains a mystery. And, and, and Celia, uh, Steve was just mentioning these. Uh, you know, some of the crop circles are associated with uh, uh, orbs, and Keel mentions uh, uh, some of the orbs he saw over the Ohio River. <clears throat> uh, he, he and Mary were sitting in uh, like uh, Gallipolis uh, Ferry on, on a hilltop, and uh, uh, he was kind of using his headlights to. Uh, communicate messages to the uh, orbs. Uh, you're doing a lot of investigation on orbs. Uh, you know, what are you finding about you know, the, the orbs responding to other forms of light? Oh, yeah, that's something that comes up a lot and Keel noticed it too that they actually will you know directly respond to light I know that in some of his earlier experiences during that time you know if he's shown a light the other lights in the sky you know a lot of them were these like luminous purple blobs would kind of scoot away but probably one of the most notable was when he actually used Morse code um, and spelled out the word descend and the light actually did move down Um, and that is really intriguing to me because I think, and, you know, it's kind of interesting too, even um, with the crop circle thing, because um, I know for a long time too, uh, pretty much exactly like Steve, 
I I must have watched, you know, some TV show or something when I was probably like seven or eight years old where someone showed you how easy it was to make crop circles. And then for years I was like, oh, yeah, they're all man-made. But a lot of them are associated with um, yeah, specifically orb or light ball phenomena. And, of course, there's a longer tradition of um, them possibly being made by demons or witches or fairies, things like that. And so that's an interesting thing, too, when you do have these people even making the crop circles and all of a sudden they're seeing these luminous objects. Um, I do think that there is, there's got to be some understanding or interface between these orbs, you know, these balls of light, and human consciousness. Because, I mean, that's even the interesting thing that occurred to me when I read that um, from Keel that he spelled out the word descend, is, you know, this communication does happen between us and these, you know, things, for lack of a better word, these paranormal occurrences and entities. And when it comes to UFOs, you know, if these are indeed extraterrestrials, I think there is just this kind of accepted, oh, they're, you know, to a point where they can understand our language through the use of some sort of translator or something like that. I think that it might be deeper than that. I think it does show um, a genuine connection between us and whatever they are. Um, something that goes, you know, deeper than language, just maybe straight to intent, you know. You know, that, that's a good point because when he, uh, he used Morse code, to, to write out descend, we wouldn't normally expect aliens or light balls <laughs> to know Morse yeah. code yet. So they, you must be right. They must have been responding to his consciousness somehow. Yeah, like I feel like there is, you know, either a link or almost like maybe something more direct than that, you know, that these things might actually be connected to us in very intrinsic ways. And, <clears throat> you know, that's... That scene is like on page, you know, like the, the page 152, 153 of Mothman prophecies. Um, you know, there is a mound in that vicinity, and it's it's still standing. There uh, were noted. Many more in the area. It's uh, near, well, you know, the confluence with the uh, Kanawha River and uh, the Ohio River. Uh, so you have uh, a lot of water concentrated in one place, and there's. Um, it's very typical to find a lot of mounds in an area like that. Um, Keel, um, you know, speculated that uh, the UFOs had some, you know, the mounds may have been built on some kind of ley line that they understood at that time, 2,000, 2,500 years ago, uh, the UFOs were... You know, the, 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 there we are back to the some type of consciousness involved in this phenomenon um, and you know, on one of your shows recently you were talking about the uh, effigy mounds in Wisconsin it, that, that there is the same type 
of paranormal events going on there uh, in, in your area. Can, can you tell us a little bit about the, effi- the effigy mounds? Oh, yeah, I am majorly interested in the effigy mounds. Um, and Wisconsin has, I think, I think possibly the highest concentration of them um, in the U.S., and we do have a variety of different mounds. You know, we have the more conical-shaped ones that um, don't really represent anything, um, some burial mounds. But really, the effigy mounds are um, those mounds which are sh- shaped like different animals or figures. And I've just, I've always been really interested um, in them. My mom actually worked as an archaeologist, so I kind of have that interest sort of born into me, I suppose. And the interesting thing with that is not only is there, there's a strong connection, which Kiel does mention um, across his articles and in the Mothman Prophecies, I think it was, between UFO sightings and mounds. But there is also a connection, this was really made by Linda Godfrey, between cryptid sightings and effigy mounds. Um, she cited a, lot, a huge connection between sightings of the man-wolf or dog-man and effigy mounds. And there was even a correlation between specifically other mounds associated with the water panther um, entities. And there was even a really notable encounter from 1936 when a night watchman for uh, the St. Coletta Institute um, in, gosh, where was it? Oh, man. I, it's in Wisconsin. I can't remember exactly what the town was. He actually saw... You've been um, talking about where she man- saw, found the... Oh, the, oh it, was, uh, it was south... I think it was southeastern Wisconsin. And I even yeah. have the book here that she saw, but I don't remember the name of it. But go ahead. Yeah, no, he saw, you know, for lack of a better word, a man-wolf slashing the earth of an effigy mound nearby. And it actually even uttered a word that sounded like Gadara at this guy. And so, you know, that connection is really strong between sightings of the man-wolf and these effigy mounds, you know, in close proximity. And then, of course, too, you have Devil's Lake, which actually has three uh, mounds right near it, a bear mound, a lynx mound, and then a bird mound. And there's a ton of ghost accounts, um, supposed lake monster. There's a history of lake monster reports there. So you do, you see this connection again, not just between mounds and UFOs, but across the board, you know, paranormal occurrences. Uh, the book, just, just to interrupt for a second, was uh, is the uh, Indian Mounds of Wisconsin. And I can't see the name, but it, you'll find it. And one of the other mounds she mentioned, Zelia, were water spirit mounds, which yes, are... Uh, yeah. The, the panther mounds are kind of, you know, they're very simplistic like you'd think they'd look. You've got a little head and little ears and, the, and I guess a small tail and the feet. The, the water spirit mounds are characterized by a very long kind of a pointed tail. And for some reason mm-hmm. she said that primarily the clusters of dogman sightings were with those types of, of, like you say, water spirit mounds. Bizarre. Yeah, so there again is, you know, another tentative connection to water even through just you know, the, that figure, not directly to a water source, perhaps, but to something that represents oh, and, and, it. And may I remind you, uh, uh, Zelia, I think you found in, a, uh, in an old uh, Fortean Times when it was digest size, wasn't there an article on uh, black cats in England and their association yes. with, uh, with, yes, can you talk? Can, with I can't water remember waves. the details. Yes, but this, yeah. I think were, it uh, was... Oh gosh, it was by. Oh I don't man, remember. It was, uh, I actually was just. just yeah. It, it's one of the it old was, um, uh, the markets. Just one of the old uh, Fortean Times, way back before it became uh, a real slick magazine. 
Yeah, it was the connection between, I believe it was actually, I think it was the black shuck sightings in water. So many of them occur right on waterways or near waterways. Yeah. And that is, that's just, yeah, again, too, you just have this, I mean, it seems like paranormal occurrences, even UFO sightings and ghost sightings show up near water so many times. And, you know, when it starts branching into cryptids, that would have no apparent connection. You know, you think of these, you know, the black shuck, the black dog sightings, you wouldn't necessarily connect that to something that is aquatic. Yet there it is showing up again and again. And Steve, have you gone down to the Two and We Park when uh, you know, you're not at the uh, uh, TNT site and seen that uh, water panther uh, carved in the stone that's on display? Oh, I guess I've been there, but I haven't seen that. No, I have to look for it next time. No, that's right in the General Point Pleasant area you're talking about, right? Right, it's uh, down there by uh, Chief Cornstalk's grave, but yeah, there's that. Uh, yeah, the rock art is called. Uh, you know, this is a sample of the water panther. I think it was found in the uh, Kanawha River. Uh, you know, just a little. You know, downstream from the uh, confluence, but it, you know, like like Zelia said, it, this um, carving is associated with water. It's just a very interesting image that keeps reappearing in you know, these uh, river valleys, uh, archaeological art- artifacts, uh, folklore, uh, you know, uh, what Keel was writing about. There seems like there really is some kind of pattern there that we're just discovering. I think I think you're right, and I will say I'm. That's one area I'm not good at. There have been other researchers that have looked at the uh, geology of the area, the makeup of the rock, the the flowing water, perhaps creating some kind of a, a field or whatever. Uh, even Lethbridge, the famous dowser, believed that some go, some apparitions were caused by the proximity of water. And then you get the real weirdness. You've got, uh, of course. UFOs plunging in and out of the water, lakes and oceans, and you have uh, apparent strange-looking craft, alien craft, uh, sucking water up in hoses or without hoses, and Mm -hmm. even the UFO pilots gathering water in buckets. So, uh, you know, it just, uh, you start going down the path, and uh, you're looking for answers, and you just get so many more questions. And are... Do you find that the river, America's river valleys have USOs or are they more associated with the larger lakes, you know, your 
closer to the Great Lakes. Um, you know, I, you know, Barbara's closer to the ocean. What, you know, are U- USOs more associated with larger bodies of water than um, river valleys? I would say so, Zelia, but uh, there seems to be that seem to be exceptions. Um, some of the lakes in Puerto Rico talk about uh, apparently crafts coming in and out of. Um, there was the uh, I guess there was some sightings. There was that one uh, Zelia in the Mothman prophecies, where uh, somebody I think on the other on the, the Galapagos side saw what appeared to be a landed craft on the water. Uh, yeah. In the in, in the Ohio River, um, but uh, I let uh, I don't. That's all I know. Maybe Zelia can think of other examples of smaller bodies of water where these have come. What, what you, you've read Sanderson's book more recently than I have. Yeah. Did he deal mostly with the oceans? It was mainly yeah. Uh, Invisible Residence was um, the one that really dealt with the USOs, yeah. and um, I would say that there is more of a connection to the larger bodies of water, but there is definitely still a connection to, you know, even smaller ponds and reservoirs and rivers. And that's kind of what makes it so intriguing is, you know, if you look, because Sanderson in Invisible Residence really kind of propounded this idea that perhaps, you know, there could be, and of course he was always very particular about never really stating this is what I think it is, but it was always, you know, just an option of what could be, um, which is something I really respect about his work. Um, he had this theory that, you know, possibly there could be an advanced civilization which had evolved and continued to live in the water as opposed to on land, and that this might be responsible for sightings of USOs and even most UFOs. And so the interesting thing is that, yeah, there is, I would say, a higher concentration the larger the body of water is, but he also pointed out a lot of different sightings where things were observed going into smaller lakes and ponds and rivers um, to the point that, you know, you have to wonder if there was in this in his concept, you know, of this possible civilization, if there was travel between these areas or these were like outposts or something like that. I tend to think that the water connection I do wonder if it does have something to do with the energy. And again too, you know, with the paranormal, there's almost there's so many topics that border it. You know, that to really figure out, okay, is this the energy of this area affecting, you know, this phenomena, you would have to like really study, yeah, the geology and, you know, the composition of the area and stuff like that. Um, I think that there probably is something to the fact that water does affect um, energy. But I think, too, that a lot of the time, especially with these UFO landings, it might be symbolic because, again, too, you have so many cases where UFOs are seen over hydro plants or hydroelectric plants and Mm -hmm. water reservoirs, um, gathering water, asking for water. So I think that in that regard, the connection to um, smaller bodies of water might be largely symbolic. If I was going to venture a guess, I suppose. Yeah, and, and you, you just mentioned that uh, there was the case in uh, a river in Jamaica you know, a couple weeks ago uh, when we were covering sea monsters. Uh, Dave Godsword was uh, talking about some of these. Uh, like uh, you know, pretty much unseen giant uh, squids or 
an octopus or something like that that uh, the, off Jamaica the um you know, nearly sank um, medium-sized fishing boats, and but it, it, it had the characteristics of uh, octopus behavior. But it, it anyhow, was that contemporary, Mark? I was that something think recent? It, yeah, yeah, I think it, I, I don't know. Say, say within the last forty years or so. I okay. uh, I don't have I don't have the book in front of me right now. Uh, right. Uh, I can get back with you, but the the, the point I was go, going with this is, uh, you know, there have been you know this one partially unseen uh, sea monster in Jamaica and you know, the the USO in uh, Jamaica River. It, it, it's really uh, amazing how. Keel uh, incorporated so many world events and sightings, uh, uh, different phenomenon from around the world into his Mothman prophecies. Yes, and also uh, another book that's a favorite of uh, Zelia's and, and mine is the uh, Strange Creatures from Time and Space, which has been retitled, I think, The Guide to Mysterious Beings. And that was the book where he first uh, proposed the idea of window areas, trying to come to grips with why these things sort of pop in and pop out. And when you talk about lake monsters, uh, everybody, I mean, Wisconsin is filled with lakes with monsters in it, as I recall. Uh Peppy, isn't Peppy uh, a, a Wisconsin beast? Yeah, I think, I think that's one of the ones happens. that Chad Lewis yep, uh, wrote course, about. Jenny in Lake Geneva, yeah. And uh, I think uh, where's Bessie? Is that uh, Lake Erie? God, I don't remember. But what the heck? How is it? People, it's like even in uh, in, in Loch Ness and in Ireland and so forth. Uh, there's there's uh, Loch Morar where Morag, Morag is supposed to dwell, and that's on the more the east side, or the west side of, of Scotland, away from uh, Loch Ness. And some of these lakes are too small to support a large beast, much less a colony of them. So, you know, there's not enough fish there. So why is it do we keep seeing these creatures? Uh, Dr. Donald Ormond called it the phantom menagerie. Why do we keep seeing these creatures in places where they can't exist, yet we have dozens, hundreds of people that have seen basically the same thing in the same area for a number of years. Mm-hmm. And so I know that these Julia sightings. has the answer. <laughs> Go ahead. <laughs> oh, of course. Let me just, you know, check my pocket. <laughs> um, yeah, no, so many sightings, too, of these uh, lake monsters. It's almost like with many of these things, it's kind of like a flap where you get, you know, dozens of sightings at one time and then you'll go a time and absolutely nothing happens. And, you know, especially when you have a restricted area, like a relatively small lake, um, and I use the term relatively small because, yeah, you know, it's a lake, it's a fairly large area, but still, when you're looking at pretty much a controlled ecosystem and you're trying to rationalize how, you know, a whole species of these really large creatures could live there, the idea of it only showing up for like, you know, a month or so and then kind of sinking back down 
it seems very strange if you look at it solely from a physical standpoint. Um, and I do, I have to think that, you know, because that, that was one of the first things that really started bothering me when I was looking at cryptozoology from, you know, the classic conventional standpoint of these are all just undiscovered creatures. Is so often when you had to think about, okay, maybe there's just one of them. Yeah, you know, you might be able to reconcile one creature living in a lake like that and, you know, not being seen all the time, flaring up sometimes and being able to survive. But really you can never look at, if we're looking at animals, we have to look at a population. And so many of these places just really don't have the ability to sustain a population for so long. And so I do, I, I tend to think more often than not that with a lot of cryptids, you know, they are possibly some sort of, you know, projection or materialization, you know, something not exclusively of this plane of existence, this world, you know, and something that is largely temporary, which flares up under certain circumstances. And something that might go along with that is if you look at the Loch Ness sightings uh, in, in recent years, there have been a great deal of UFO sightings, strange lights in the sky. There's even been men in black phenomena reported there. And if you go back hundreds of years, they called it something else. It was the water horse, the Kelpie, this evil mm. shape-shifting creature that would lure men and women to their doom into the water. So, uh, and uh, 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 F.W. Holliday, who uh, was a great British researcher, was investigating Loch Ness, found all kinds of high strangeness, went to Ireland and found uh, other very simple, you know, a lot of these creatures are, or whatever they are, you know, you've got kind of the hump or the back or whatever. You've got the long neck or whatever. Sometimes you don't see that. And uh, they're just, it's, you get the sort of the paradox of, of people seeing roughly the same thing and some even spectacular sightings. Uh, Nessie was supposed to have seen slithering across the road a couple times uh, near foyers. Um, but uh, it's another, you know, we, we, you see the pattern here. We keep getting to these, these different paradoxes where, you know, we're dealing with, are we dealing with uh, flesh and blood creatures in some respect, if not all of them, or are we dealing with, as Zilia was talking about, uh, you know, some aspect of consciousness, something more like an apparition maybe. Yeah, and Steve, you, you just mentioned, um, you know, patterns and and. You were just talking about, uh, yeah, the Kelpies uh, l- luring people to their death, uh, you know, drag them into the uh, Irish Lake. Um, yeah, it's pretty similar to, um, you know, the mermaid lore. So you, know, you get, uh, you know, some variations of the, uh, you know, water horse versus the half lady, half fish. Um, and, and the siren. Uh, the siren would lure you know, sailors to their doom, they'd lure their uh, ships onto the rocks and so forth. Yeah, uh, you know, like Lorelei. And Zulia did a video recently. It's kind of like this, uh, what we're talking about with uh, uh, like Bigfoot and Momo. Uh, you want to would you like to get into Momo? That is a new subject for probably most of the nightlight listeners. Oh, sure thing. Yeah, Momo is just you know it's another one of those really classic you know cryptid cases. 
that, and again, I came, when I started really researching the paranormal, I was obsessed with cryptozoology, and I was definitely coming from the concept that it was, you know, these are just simply undiscovered creatures, and if we look hard enough, we're going to find them. Um, and so Momo, I had looked at for years simply as some sort of weird subset of Bigfoot um, with a few slight variations. Um, and that has to do with the fact that, you know, Momo is a little bit smaller than, you know, the typical Sasquatch sightings. It was about six to seven feet tall, um, covered in this long, dark brown hair that actually covered up the face. People couldn't really make out a face ever on these sightings. And the name, too, Momo, is something which I just absolutely love. It's actually the abbreviation for Missouri and then the first two letters of monster. So Missouri monster, it's perfect. And, you know, there was, I, would, I call it a flap, really, which started in July of 1972. And this was actually a year, though, after one of the first really dramatic sightings of the creature. But this flap really flared up in July of 1972 when Momo was spotted by two boys who were playing in their backyard. And it was first spotted at the base of Marzolf Hill, or Star Hill, as it's called locally. And, you know, the interesting thing, though, is that you do, after through the next couple of months, you have tons of sightings of the creature, but not just the creature. You know, with so many of these really classic cryptid monster accounts, you get a lot of high strangeness. And so that is definitely, Momo is no exception in that regard. You have a flare-up in sightings of um, UFOs. People were saying they're seeing craft and different fireballs. There were um, anomalous screams in the area, even disembodied voices. And the really interesting thing is that the area where this was occurring is Louisiana, Missouri. And there's a history of, you know, here and there people would hear phantom screaming. There's a history of spook lights in the area. There's even a slight history of sightings of a creature. But for some reason, for that span of a couple of months, each of these different types of paranormal phenomena just decided to really flare up and sightings reached an all-time high. And, you know, there was other um, high strangeness involved, too. Um, the main family that was involved with many of the sightings of Momo was the Harrison family. Um, those were the two boys that saw the, you know, the initial sighting in July of 1972. And right after that sighting, actually their dog became seriously ill for some hours afterwards. And you see this across the paranormal all the time. Um, even with the Flatwoods monster case, the dog that accompanied you know, the posse up to the sighting of the downed craft and the Flatwoods monster actually died um, from the same sort of affliction which plagued the human witnesses. Um, thankfully, though, in the Momo case, the dog was all right. But it is, there's just, there's a lot of really, really high strangeness involved, which definitely complicates it if you're trying to look at it from a strictly cryptozoological perspective. Okay, and since M Momo is um, maybe a more southern type monster is he uh, associated with uh, Mississippi River or some you know some other kind of body of water there were a lot of sightings actually either directly in or right near rivers in the area um, yeah, that's another great okay. point. Because, yeah, again, you you know, you're seeing the same pattern just over and over again with that. Okay, I I, I was just wondering. Uh, I I I thought you said uh, he he was also sighted in Louisiana. Yeah, I kind of get that, you know, Delta marshy type environment. Oh, yeah, the name parts not, of the state. Sorry, the name of the town was Louisiana. Louisiana, oh, right, in Missouri, right? So, 
Yep, in Missouri. I can add to that. I'll let get back to Zealy in a second. Um, there was a, an interview I found on the Faded Dicks archive by Hayden C. Hughes, a voice from the past, and they were investigating a series of sightings in Louisiana, of all places, Missouri. I visited there about this time last year just to kind of look around, and uh, uh, they had seen a, a, a bunch of uh, Mothman-like creatures, uh, not Mothman, Bigfoot-like creatures. The guy lost his job because he moved his family out of his house. He went back to see if the thing would come back, and they didn't like him chasing monsters, so to speak. So this guy, a city employee, lost his job. But they had also, people had been seeing strange lights in the hill. And uh, a year and two later, in Pennsylvania, Stan Gordon reported those, uh, those Bigfoot and UFO sightings going on for a couple of years in southwest Pennsylvania. So again, the patterns keep showing up. And then some friends of ours, uh, Chad Lewis, Kevin Nelson, and Noah Voss wrote The uh, Big Muddy Monster, which covers this, uh, this incredible flap that uh, Zelia was just talking about in uh, kind of, didn't it congregate mostly in South Central Illinois? Is that about right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's okay. right. Okay, and speaking, uh, 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 go ahead and keep, keep talking about the uh, um, case you, you were just talking about, uh, Ch- Chad's Monster. Oh, the, the big muddy monster. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. Right. That's a, a new one for us as well. But that was um, um, okay. Was that was that part okay. of what you covered on your YouTube video, Azelia? Um, I didn't cover it uh, in the Momo um, one, even though it is okay. it is connected because it was, um, yeah, again like the early seventies in Murfreesboro, I believe it was. Right, yes. right. and so it, really, you're talking general proximity. Yeah, and again, it was that was the one that there were some sightings of a, a lighter colored one there, right? Yeah. Or was that there were a lot of I see, and this is the interesting thing again because you have the early to mid seventies, a lot of these monster cases flaring up that were very similar to one another. Um, where you do you have these like you know these Bigfoot light creatures, but they're different in mm-hmm. um, certain ways, or they're very specific, and then you also have a flare up of high strangeness. So. Yeah, the 70s is just, it's one of my favorite times for paranormal investigation because there was just so much going on. And John Keel in, I think, Strange Creatures from Time and Space talks about some of the southern monsters, Louisiana and so forth. They were the uh, ABSS, the Abominable Swamp Slobs. Yep. Now, I'll have to look for that one on Amazon. If, I, if they... Uh, resume delivery. Uh, that so- sounds like a, a interesting book. I'd like to get that ho- hopefully soon. Yeah, it's one of Keel's classics. Yeah. Okay, and you know, speaking of all these uh, patterns, how, how's your uh, book? Uh, was it something in patterns? Uh, uh, Parallels and Patterns, A New Paradigm for the Study of Paranormal Phenomena. Uh, Joey is further ahead than I am, Joey Medea, my co-author. I'm, uh, I've been working on the, uh, the folklore, the various traditions of folklore and modern-day UFO experiences connection. And there's just a lot of things to pull together. So 
it's going along pretty well, but I've, uh, I have no excuse now that uh, I've been, you know, been uh, restricted to the house for a while, and, and the missus is off in Texas, so I'm, I'm unsupervised. That's not a good thing ever when I'm unsupervised, but uh, I'm trying to get a little bit of discipline together. <clears throat> okay. Well, uh, whenever it's done, you and Joey are <laughs> welcome to make a return and guaranteed uh, this decade mark yes <laughs> okay well ho- hopefully we're all here still by then and you know uh we can all get get together and listen to this book and it, it, i we really like the you know the first time i heard the title um you know Months ago, when Mac brought it up, um, it was like, yeah, that's real. You know, including uh, parallels and patterns in in the title, you know, really does say a lot about paranormal studies, uh, archaeology. It just it becomes. Uh, a, a customary behavior, um, and, and you can learn something from that by j- just seeing the repetition. Or well, you know, and, it's, it's, uh, generations continue doing it. You, you know, there, there's there, there's a reason for it, and you can you extract some kind of information from the pattern. Well, you know, uh, uh, Zillian and I are on, have been on the same kind of path, and we've been influenced by John Keel uh, and, and others, uh, John Follet and so forth. May I tell you briefly, when I met Zillian the first time, uh, it's, it's, uh, uh, we were at the Van Meter Visitor Festival, which about, is about a uh, sort of a very strange wind creature, while it looked kind of like a you know, prehistoric bird, pterodactyl or something, had very odd properties. Uh, it... Uh, Supposed to have lasted around a week in uh, Iowa, Van Meter, Iowa, in 1903. And uh, the guys I just mentioned, Chad Lewis, uh, Kevin Nelson, and Noah Voss, uh, wrote the book, The Van Meter Visitor. And they have helped uh, create this great festival uh, at the end of September every year. Well, uh, Zelia and I spoke there last year. And I didn't know anything about Zelia except that she was uh, associated with Wisconsin MUFON as a director and investigator. And so... Uh, Azealia is listening to me. I've told this story before. Uh, so she started talking, and I, I'm sitting next to a friend of mine, Brandy, who we both know, and both Brandy and Azealia have been co-hosts on my show. And I said, Brandy, you know, it sounds like this lady has read John Keel. And right after that, she starts talking about John Keel and the super spectrum, which is kind of a uh, uh, something he proposed as you know, trying to come to grasp with the strange forces that brings all this together. And then she started talking about the books we just mentioned, uh, uh, Strange Creatures from Time and Space, and also Keel's Trojan Horse, which was the, the turning point for me. So I was just, uh, I just thought it was very, very cool. So I'm a bit uh, biased because, uh, you know, uh, for better or worse, she thinks a lot the way I do. Fortunately, not, not completely. But uh, so it was really, really a lot of fun. And, uh, you know, some of the, some of the old timers on, the, the on some of the other podcasts, have lamented that, you know, there's not, uh, not any young people coming up. Uh, you know, the old guard's going to die away, and 
and what's going to happen to ufology. Well, fortunately, we have Zelia Edgar, who is one of the clearest thinkers, at least in, in my estimation, in this whole realm. So it was just a, it was a lot of fun. She was there with her. She's got this great support group with her family. And so it was just a lot of fun. Oh, that was an awesome time. Yeah, it really and, was. And we're Twin Peaks freaks, too. I mean, good yeah, Lord, exactly. it's, it's just scary from, from, from there. Thank you so yeah. much, too. That's just, it's so nice to hear you say that. But I also have to say, too, it was just, it's kind of uncanny, because I guess we even used the same example at one point, uh, the Marlington, oh, West right. Virginia creature. <laughs> and our, our talks were completely just, different. Yep. But, yes, and it was a very obscure Bigfoot. Uh, example too as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but it's you, just yeah, it's uncanny. Took, you you took different paths to arrive at the same conclusion. Yes, but we, you know, it's funny because uh, as you know, I've been on Mac's show and there's a, a Commander Cobra. This is one of the uh, one of the guys on there, and he has his own show, mm-hmm. Task Force Griffin, on uh, KGRA, I guess. And he asked me one time when I was on, he said. Can you even, you know, look at anything in the paranormal without doing the sort of uh, John Keel analysis, you know, looking for, and I, I can't. I mean, it's just, it's automatic now, and I think it's pretty automatic for Zelia. When you look at uh, at these things, you just automatically start, you know, like uh, the, the strange the Russian hat with Tiny and the Russian hats in 1917 in England. Uh, maybe there's no connection, but it's it's fascinating the, the patterns that do show up and that may may actually represent something important. Oh, yeah, and I'm to the point, too, where if I don't see high strangeness with something, I actually feel weird. You know, like if there's a cryptid <laughs> account that doesn't yeah. have, you know, some sort of other bizarre thing happening around it, I'm like, okay, what, what's up here? You know, something's missing. Um, yeah, I think, you know, once you, I don't know, once you kind of, I don't want to say devote yourself to the Keelian idea, but once you've really kind of really thought about it and turned it over, I know for a while that like when I read uh, Mothman Prophecies was technically not my first Keel book, but the first one I rediscovered when I was 17. Um, you know, it took me a while to really start coming to terms with it because it really does cause you to just, you know, the entire paradigm for the paranormal is just totally flipped. And then it really, at least for me, um, so much stuff just started making so much more sense than trying to go at it from the very separate UFOs are extraterrestrial, cryptids are undiscovered creatures, ghosts are spirits. You know, I'm not even saying that it discounts the idea that some of the phenomena might still be that. Some of it might still fall into these conventional ways of thinking, but I think a lot of it is way more tied um, than conventionally we've thought it to be. But Mark, I think that most of us, uh, we... Uh, even Keel started out looking at the UFO phenomenon. Once he first he thought it was nothing, and then he thought, well, it's got to be extraterrestrial. Uh, Jacques Vallée did the same. You know, they, they, there's this pattern where uh, so many researchers started out. I, I was very happy in the 60s with uh, reading, uh, you know, the Lorenzen's book, uh, Jim and Carl Lorenzen's APRO, uh, one of the early uh, UFO organizations. They wrote some great books on uh, flying saucer occupants and so forth. And uh, I was uh, convinced that uh, we're, you know, craft are landing from other planets and the little humanoids uh, jumped out. And this is before the greys kind of came in and took over because the greys weren't always with us. It was very, used to be very hard to find a grey. Uh, 
But then, and I was, uh, and I have I've said this before to Zillia, I think, that uh, when Trojan Horse first came out, my a friend of mine and I, who had been in a couple different UFO groups over the years, we resisted it. We didn't like Keel's message that these, these things seem to be connected. So we thought, you know, what's, what's Keel doing? What's he thinking? You know, why, why even bother studying this stuff if it's just all connected? And then, you know, if you pursue something with an open mind, and I read his book, and I begrudgingly started to see that it was connected. And then, I don't know, Zelia, when you – did you read, ever read um, uh, Passport to Magonia by Valet? Oh, yeah. Yes, I love okay. that. Yes, well, that was the, the second whammy. You know, I'm, I'm like was in recovery from Trojan Horse. Then I read uh, uh, Passport to Magonia, which Mark, uh, uh, for the audience, uh, makes uh, comparisons between uh, folkloric traditions and some modern-day UFO experiences. And then that was, that was it. There was no turning back. The thing that really hit me with Passport to Magonia, too, because, um, yeah, I read that fairly recently. So, you know, I was still very much acclimated to the idea that this stuff is a lot stranger than, you know, first glance allows. But what really hit me reading Passport to Magonia, too, is the kind of, in a weird way, there's a finality to it because you look at this, and I feel like a lot of um, ET people, they're okay with, you know, connecting fairy lore to the extraterrestrial idea. But the thing that really hit me with that is realizing that give it another hundred years or so, and when, you know, the new conventional way of thinking has shifted, you know, are people going to be laughing at us calling the UFO occupants extraterrestrial, just as we kind of look at the fairy lore? Um, if you're looking at it from an extraterrestrial lens and think, oh, that's so silly when it's so obviously interplanetary. You know, and so seeing that pattern, especially in Passport to Magonia, just really drives that idea home that, you know, there is, there's, there is something to this phenomenon. What it is, that's really, you know, what's behind it is the thing that I'm very interested in now. Yeah, Mark. In some some cases, there's it's indistinguishable when you you talk about certain cases of uh, well folklore and modern day UFO experiences. Uh, there's sometimes just the outer trappings are a little different, but everything else is the same. Yeah, and you know, if people, you know, we have what just under forty minutes left. It, you know, you know, we should. Just take a minute and let both of you, uh, you know, plug your shows and uh, Zelia's YouTube channel, and you know, uh, we're going to get your archives if they like this information. I, I mean, you know, you two are really uh, two of the top scholars in the paranormal. Uh, field and cryptozoology. Uh, you know, just if they, if our, our listeners are enjoying what they hear, how can they learn more about you know what, what you do and hear more of your uh, di- diverse topics? Did you want to go ahead, Julia? Sure thing. So, um, if you actually just go to my website, justanothertinfoilhat.com. Um, there's no spaces in that. I've got links to all of my YouTube videos, my podcast on the Paranormal UK radio network, um, anything that I'm possibly guesting on, upcoming speaking engagements, articles. Um, that's all located there. And then my YouTube channel is also called Just Another Tinfoil Hat, No Spaces. And then my podcast on the Paranormal UK radio network is also 
if you can believe this, called Just Another Tinfoil Hat, with the grand exception that that one has spaces between the words. So, but yeah, if you just go to my website, everything kind of, you'll get redirected wherever you want to go. And you're available on Facebook. Yes, and that's just my name, Zelia Edgar. So, yeah, feel free to reach out. And uh, I'm on Facebook. I do, uh, uh, for the past, uh, it's been four years now, I've been doing uh, Mac Maloney's Military X-Files, which is kind of a crazy and fun show as a, uh, as a correspondent. I started out, uh, Mac spotted me. Actually, Mac is a, uh, uh, a writer, and uh, he writes the great uh, fun wingman series, which is kind of uh, post-Holocaust, uh, uh, Mac, uh, whether uh, a hawk hunter uh, flying an F-16 uh, battling the forces of evil, you know, uh, uh, neo-Nazis, neo-commies and everything. Very entertaining. So I, I, I friended him on Facebook, and he must have seen my Mothman post, so he hadn't come on one time to talk about the Mothman. And then shortly thereafter, he just had me on every week. So uh, it's been a blast. And I, uh, uh, Zelie and I are both on the, uh, the Paranormal UK radio network, and you can click on Podbean at that tab, and you can find our shows and many others. Mine is The High Strangeness Factor. I've been doing it for a little over a year now. And I think the variety of guests have been pretty good including a, a, a young lady named Julia Edgar, for example. Uh, we've done, uh, she's one of my, uh, I've got the, the greatest rotating co-hosts. Uh, Andy Mercer is uh, my producer and helped me create. And uh, Zelia and another young lady we know from Van Meter, Brandy. And uh, both these ladies are really smart and fascinated by the paranormal. And I used to ju- just enjoy doing the shows alone, actually. I mean, Andy always always adds something, but then I found it's really a lot of fun having a co-host. So uh, especially uh, people that are as uh, interested in this stuff as I am. So, And the, the book, uh, Parallels and Patterns, A New Paradigm for, uh, for the Study of Paranormal Phenomena, will be out someday. And uh, I guess that's, that's about it. I... Uh, I don't have a I don't have a cool website like Celia does yet. Okay. Well, uh, no, no YouTube videos. They can they can just look at my still picture on Facebook, I guess. Well, and yeah, you know, your you oh. know, both of your shows were terrific, right? Very, very informative. Oh, thank you. And, and when you mm-hmm. did, thank you, you. Know, you just or, or, appear as just guests. Um, on other people's shows, um, you do a great job, and, and um, I think you really bring a lot of credibility to the cryptid studies, and you know you, you, know, you are very knowledgeable about what other people have seen, and, and it, it is interesting where if you go back in, into the artwork or even um uh, some of the um, documentation uh within the bible uh, what were some of these people seeing uh, you know this has been around for a long time yeah, probably as is, long as human beings have go ahead <clears throat> yeah yeah i think that is especially with ufo's you see where people think that it is this like new thing um, and, you know, even if it goes back, it goes back only a couple hundred years. But I, this is something that, you know, even with it being the paranormal, I think that you kind of have to come to terms with the fact that this kind of is a normal condition for 
our society, you know, as human beings, this has always been with us, in my opinion, you know, these strange occurrences. And as to whether, you know, a lot of people think at um, certain points in history there was a greater understanding of it, um, I think that might be likely in some cases. But, yeah, whatever this, you know, the blanket phenomenon is that kind of manifests in all these different ways, I think it really has been around with us since we've been around. And uh, I don't know if you're familiar with Albert Rosales and his incredible database. He has a, he's put mm-hmm. it out in a series of 15 books called The The Others Amongst Us, Humanoids. And he divides it up into different years going all the way back to 1 AD. And, uh, of course, the more recent volumes only cover a few years. But uh, it, it's just fascinating. I mean, we've, we've always had people with us. And earlier about what you were talking about, one of the – most fun for me, fun things for me is that uh, Zeely and I have had the pleasure of uh, I've had the pleasure of being with her on uh, several different shows as uh, the joint interview, and that's just a blast. It's a lot of fun. Oh yeah. yeah and, and you know, both of you are out in the field, which br- brings a lot more credibility to. You, you, your your research it's not like you know just looking up stuff on wikipedia you, you know you are at the conferences um you know uh, meeting um you know witnesses and talking with people uh, and steve you were in the appalachia area uh, last year and you met with uh, Stan Gordon to review the Kecksburg. Oh, he it was at yeah the uh, uh, Kecksburg Kecksburg uh, uh, sighting uh, the the thing that streaked across the sky back in '66. You know, my wife saw that. We were uh, let's see, I was in junior high at the time. She would have been seventh grade. I was in eighth grade. We didn't know each other three years later, but she saw it, and I heard about it the next day. And, uh, you know, it was, uh, it was funny because in, in eighth grade we had a creative writing assignment to talk about what, uh, what happened. And, of course, I, uh, I, my, my head was filled with uh, Marvel Comics uh, science fiction plots, so I'm pretty sure I was guilty of unconscious plagiarism when I wrote about the, the alien that came out of it and took human form and tried to take over the world. Not, not a literary masterpiece. But, uh, yeah, I was uh, able – it was nice to stand to ask me to speak there. And, uh, and so it was, it's, you know, just a historic event. And, uh, but you know what? Uh, there was a guy that uh, – a guy there, uh, Ray Keller, Cosmic Ray, that Zillian and I got to interview uh, about a couple months ago. And he's a contactee guy. He firmly believes in the contactees and even claims some of his own experiences. A great guy. I met him at Kexburg. He came up with – he believes – that the Kecksburg craft may have been a Russian uh, uh, launch uh, meant to go to Venus, but it, it failed and fell back to Earth because some of the strange lettering around the bottom of it people talked about may look like a little bit like the Russian alphabet. What's I forget what that's called off the top of my head. But uh, um, anyway, his, really? Is that, is that, yeah, yeah, I was yeah, going to say Cyrillic. Yeah. I think you know, I think uh, you yeah, know, worried about that. Very convincing that maybe you know uh, uh, it's supposed to have diverted a little bit as it before it, it crashed or landed. But uh, I uh, 
And that would make, you know, if they hauled this thing away, that would make sense uh, that it was actually some kind of a, they, ca- they captured a Russian craft. So I, I don't know what it was. I honestly don't. But uh, I love Ray's, uh, Ray Keller's uh, theory. And he was, uh, he was fun, wasn't he, uh, Zelia? We did a two-part. Oh, yeah. He, yeah, I got to co-host for that one. And that was just, that was a really just fun conversation. And yes, he's he's written written a trilogy of books about Venus, and they're they're fascinating. But again, you know, you have to uh, the contactee aspect is very interesting because you get this duality of things that seem like they're hoaxes, but then you get some stuff that seems like it just might be have some substance to it. So it's one of those. Uh, it's almost like so many of these things fall under the trickster category. That's something uh, Zeely and I haven't mentioned yet. But so many of the things we've talked about. Could easily fit under that category. Yeah, one of the biggest ones I feel like is, you know, it seems like the intent with a lot of this stuff gets all jumbled up. And this was something going way back to the Men in Black um, type stuff. And yeah, you, you know, even with that too, you have to be careful because there is a lot of evidence that there was, you know, government, um, kind of a government plan there that sent out people trying to get information about people who had seen UFOs. But, you know, even regardless of that, so many of these cases. You know, the ostensible motive of the men in black is to tell people who had seen a UFO, don't talk about it. And the amazing thing is that in a lot of these cases, the likelihood is that if the person hadn't been told, don't talk about your experience, they probably would have dropped it. You know, a lot of these people were just, you know, normal average people who saw something unexplained and really, you know, yeah, that can affect your life. But a lot of people just, you know, practically, they just kind of want to keep going with whatever they were doing before all of a sudden you have this strange character showing up and saying, you know, don't talk about it. That just adds more importance to it. And I think Keel pointed that out, that in a lot of these cases, this ostensible motive of silencing the witness, it does the exact opposite thing. And it's, it's the intent of this stuff, yeah, that trickster aspect that comes through so often um, that's just really interesting. And I think Jacques Vallée is the one that said the phenomenon negates itself in the same yeah, way. Yeah. You people see a UFO, sometimes they don't even report it, and somebody shows up and says, don't talk about it. So it's sort of, you've got that kind of negation thing brought in, even though people are, you know, more, it's almost like they're being manipulated. They're more likely to talk yeah. about it. And then you also have experiences, you know, Mark, uh, oftentimes uh, uh, so many, now, you know, you talk about in the field. I haven't done a lot of stuff in the field. I think Actually, Zelia probably has more with her association with, with MUFON. I'm mostly a researcher, not, not exclusively. But, uh, but a lot of times people will say, you know, they, they, don't, they don't tell all the aspects of their experience. They say things like, you know, we, we weren't going to tell you that part because it was so weird. We didn't think you'd believe any of our story. So sometimes the experience is so bizarre that in a way it kind of negates it because you think, well, how, you know, that's just too far out, too weird. Um, one other quick Men in Black story. Jenny Randalls, in her book called The Truth Behind the Men in Black, there was an incident where a young lady in England sees a strange light in the sky. I don't recall if she reported it or not, but uh, a couple of men came to the door, looked flesh and blood men, you know, from the government, and uh, the parents didn't even know why they let them in without any kind of question. And uh, so they started questioning this young lady, and she was very distressed. And then they left. Jenny Randall's got the idea. She was a great researcher. Uh, 
Jenny Randall's got the idea to put this young lady under hypnosis, even though there shouldn't have been anything weird. From her perspective, this lady was being verbally questioned by the one man. The other man was shooting her questions telepathically, intermittently. And this was, she couldn't understand what was going on. She was so distressed by this. Neither line of questioning was particularly revealing or very important. So what the hell is that all about? And one, one last thing is John Keel suggested that perhaps some of the men in black experiences might be illusory. Not that they were hallucinations, but that it's, they may not actually be real physical experiences. They may be something, something different, something, I don't know, from the super spectrum. Where of course, he used the term, he borrowed the term from Sanderson, um, ultra-terrestrial, uh, which he talked about. That gets into another subject transmogrifications of energy and so forth. But he wasn't, while people were having real experiences, he wasn't sure always how physical they were. It might have been something else. Are we, are we, uh, we're going all over the place here. Maybe we're, we're, we're losing, uh, we're not grounded or something. No, but, but, um, you know, Keel did talk about, when he did interviews with people that he did uh, keep in touch with them for a while afterwards. It wasn't just a one-time deal. Uh, Yes. uh, He did notice that some people were uh, psychologically deteriorating after some of their... uh, Paranormal experiences, and you know, since you're talking, you know, just talking about uh, a regression, since Mothman prophecies came out in the early '70s, has uh, regression therapy helped uh, people uh, to not have for for some people not to uh, go through the uh, psychological deterioration that was going that was a little bit more prevalent in the uh, 60s and 70s, early 70s? I think, uh, and uh, Zelia needs to weigh on this too, I think that the general consensus is that a lot of researchers are very suspicious of regressive hypnosis and mm-hmm. uh, recognize that the interviewer must be very careful not to lead the witness. Uh, I, I just interviewed um, Alan Godfrey, uh, a classic UFO abductee from 1980 in Todd Morgan, England. Last year I interviewed uh, uh, Missy Lamontagne from New Hampshire, a more, more contemporary experience. They both told me that uh, they had breakthroughs, but they, they take what they heard on tape about what they said with a grain of salt because they don't remember it. Uh, now, Zelia, when Keel talked about deterioration, it seemed like he was talking about the people that had these continuing contact experiences, more like the contactees of the 50s and 60s. Yeah. And uh, yeah. They, were, they, were, they were like giving, uh, they would give them uh, uh, prophecies and, uh, or things to find. And uh, like they were, they were, they were given some kind of a mission or something like that. And if they kind of bought into that, that seemed to not go well with them sometimes. And I think Keel called it false illumination. Is that your mm-hmm. impression, uh, Zillian? Okay. Yeah. 
Yeah. So and I, I know I um, the regression. Oh, go on. Sorry. No, 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 no. Keep going. Keep going. Yeah. Now the regression hypnosis thing. It is. Um, it's kind of a mixed bag because I know it's used a lot with um, the abduction experience, which is, you know, like you're mentioning, it is very different from the contact experience, I think, and how the people move forward from there. Because a lot of the times the contactees, the contact is occurring consciously and they do make conscious life decisions. Um, how much of that is influenced by what really happened, I don't know. Um, whereas an abductee, you know, a lot of the times it doesn't surface until much later. Um, and I know in Messengers of Deception, Jacques Vallée did cite um, a study where he found that in people who had no real interest in UFOs and exhibited no hallmarks of being abducted or ever even having um, a casual encounter, um, using regression hypnosis, the abduction experience and memories can actually be very easily planted in someone's mind. Um, so, yeah, regression hypnosis is, you know, I think that there is the potential for really great breakthroughs with it, and I think that also there's a potential for, you know, some, I don't know, kind of painting of experiences. But, and yeah, this... um, You know, keep going, keep going. Oh, yeah. No, the deterioration mentioned, too, it is, that's a lot of the, like, yeah, the contactees. I know one of my, the classics is when he does talk about the doomsday um, prophecies, and all of a sudden you have a whole group of people in a bunker on a hill waiting for the world to end, and it just doesn't. Yes, and then, and then, but prior to that, they were given prophecies that came true, so they're kind of mm-hmm. led along, and where yeah, they, they're getting, yeah, and and then they get the big one. They 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 form on the hill and tell and tell the newspapers, and then nothing happens. You know, there's yeah. there's a pattern there. I uh, try and make this quick. I uh, years ago, an old Phil Donahue show. He had a parapsychologist on. I, I couldn't find the name of this guy, but he talked about automatic writing. And he said, well, he, he believed that there was some actual contact from the other side. He said that if you practice automatic writing, you have to be careful because it will, it's actually most of it's coming from your own subconscious. And he said, it'll, at first it will be friendly and then intimate, and then it can even be very damaging and, and obscene. And he said, if you understand what's going on and it's really coming from you, you could use it for some kind of self-therapy. Not that I don't think I'd want to do that. And then, you know, do you guys know the classic case of uh, Alexandria David Neal? Keel talks about it. She wrote Magic and Mystery in Tibet. Mm. She allegedly yeah. created a thought form of Tulpa, a jolly little llama, not, not, you know, the, the, the sage, not the, not the animal. And it was, he, she could only see it. Supposedly she created it as a thought form the way the Tibetans supposedly did. And it was this happy little Jolly Lama that only she could see. It was, uh, but it, it started to become sort of negative. It became, it looked uh, like it was losing weight. Uh, the face was getting leaner. It would start to play little pranks, and then it got very nasty, almost like poltergeist phenomena. So when I, when I heard, when you got that pattern, friendly, intimate, and then nasty, I thought, that sounds like, some of the experiences that some of the people that Keel talked to, the, the contactee syndrome, as you would call it, similar to what they were having. So do you think that suggests that perhaps some of this is connected to human consciousness somehow if it follows that kind of pattern? And if I'm, if I'm right, now this doesn't you know, fit everywhere, but it does seem like it shows up in some aspects. And it would, uh, it would fit some of the contacts that Keel had mentioned in the Mothman prophecies, like uh, 
like Jay Perro and some of the other people he that were unnamed. Mm-hmm. Well, well, Steve, when um, Merle was our guest, Merle Fankhauser was our guest um, about 13 months ago. Um, you know, he he spoke about um, his. Um, Signals from Malibu CD was basically done through automatic writing, and he told our listeners about uh, at the time when he got to speak with uh, John Lennon, and you know they spoke a lot about uh, uh, automatic writing, and you know John had these fresh ideas that you know seemed like they were almost downloaded and he, he just wanted to go into the Abbey Road studios and do them, you know, uh, turn them into music you know, while they were still fresh and you know, of course a- Abbey Road was booked up and you know, it was just kind of disappointing for him uh, uh, it, in that part of the creative process but that was how uh, John wrote a lot of his songs was through that automatic writing and you know we would learn later on that he, you know, he did have that uh, sighting of a UFO in New York and Merle, you know Merle had uh, the one sighting too in the Haleakala crater so I'll just what? It, it started off being productive. Uh, it, it doesn't sound like it became, it followed the trend from the, the couple examples that you gave. So I, I well, don't know. I think know. that's a good uh, point because either this, this pattern doesn't exist everywhere. Mm-hmm. And when we start, you know, we talk about automatic writing, we're talking about channeling as well. I don't think all channeling is created equal. I think that uh, if you look at the volume called A Course in Miracles, is very similar, very kind of uplifting, it's similar to what they call the new thought movement around the turn of the last century, which actually mm-hmm. influenced a lot of the positive, Zeely and I have talked about this, a lot of the yeah. positive thinking books and, and gurus like Wayne Dyer and, uh, uh, and, and um, Norman Vincent Peale and so forth. Um, so it's not, it's not all the same. It's just that there is a, there is a, a negative side or a trickster side and uh, people need to be aware. I, I don't think I would ever do any channeling or, re, or re, you know, or, uh, uh, automatic writing. I just wouldn't. Uh, I know I know a lady that has done it, and uh, there's a lot of interesting things that have come out of it. Uh, but uh, I don't know if you've looked into it much, Julia. Automatic Not writing or channeling. Yeah, I mean, it, it comes up a lot in Keel, of course. That's you know where I know uh, most uh, of it from. Um, if I can enter, can I enter in here? Yes. <laughs> Because sure. I do channeling. Because I do it's channeling. Your show. <laughs> and do you think? Well, your show. And do you think that? Uh, I mean, obviously, there's some channeling is is done at a high level. I think I yeah. think you could say by by their fruits you shall know them. There's what do you? Can well, I ask you what you think yeah. about uh, Owaspi? John well, Bellow, New World, let me, Giant Bun. Well, okay, let, go ahead. Let me just let me just add this. I tell everybody who is is thinking of trying to do automatic writing excuse me, or channeling, 
the only way you know that for, for sure you're channeling is that you're getting philosophy. If you get anything that is like direction, like you should do this or you should do that, no matter how pretty it is, um, spirit will never give you direction. It will give you philosophy that you can utilize to make changes in your life if you choose. And that sounds like so, a course in miracles. Uh, could for be. One. I haven't read it, but it could be. I mean, I've been doing okay. this for almost 50 years now. My whole website is channeled, and um, a great deal of what I write is channeled. So I, 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 I absolutely. Have, uh, have you ever run into a gentleman named Ashtar? Uh, no, I haven't. Okay, just out of curiosity. Seems like everybody's channeled that guy. He's got a lot of face. <laughs> Very popular. He has a face. Okay. Well, in my opinion, and it's only my opinion, when you are channeling, you are literally channeling your own higher consciousness, the spirit you carry within. Somebody was, once asked me what master I channeled, and I said that the only master I really was in contact with was Master Charge. Well, I think you're onto something. Well, of course, you would know better than me. You've been doing it for years. But there was a, a, a remember Tom Snyder, the Tomorrow Show, eons ago. Yeah, right. He had uh, he had Dr. Patrick Flanagan on one night. Flanagan was the first guy to write a book on pyramid power. He was a child prodigy. He was a genius. He talked about spending the night in a pyramid, the pyramid one time. One of the first people back in the late '60s, early '70s, and uh, yeah. he started spontaneously channeling. Well, he did it for Tom Snyder, and he, you know he did he started the, the breathing and the closed eyes and the deeper voice, and he said hello Tom, and then he said my name is whatever it was Doctor something or other, and then he said, I am a higher level of Patrick's consciousness, so he it was associated with him, and not even though he gave a different name, it wasn't associated yeah. with another entity per, per se. Well, the thing is, if you give yourself a title like that, people will pay attention. Most people, you know, who say they channel, um, oh, God, um, St. Michael or Archangel Michael, they're really channeling their own higher consciousness, which is the spirit that they carry within that aspect of you that travels lifetime to lifetime to lifetime. So lots of times people who do this work feel people won't pay attention to what they're saying if it doesn't come from a higher entity. And and it does. It comes from them, but it comes from their higher consciousness. So they will so their mind will <clears throat> will basically um holographically give them what they need. So in my have opinion you, yes. in my opinion, every channeler is channeling from their own higher consciousness whatever they want to call it. <clears throat> have, you, have you ever had a situation where you felt like you started channeling something that was kind of negative and you were able to get back on track, or do you, have you never had that experience? Never had that experience. I, I will say that when I channeled, um, when I do channel, I get poetry, and I can't write poetry to save my life. Oh, there you go. So, but it's always beautiful poetry. I've never had, knock on wood, I have never had a bad experience when channeling. That's excellent. I'm glad, and, I'm glad that you pointed out yeah. the, the, the connection where it's really you're dealing with 
your, your own higher consciousness. I think that's very yeah. valuable. And and not only that, but when you stop to think about it, the spirit that rides in this body, um, the, it's the uh, the um, comparison I have used so often is that the human body is like an automobile. And we travel in it for a lifetime, and then we get another model when we go into another lifetime in another dimension on another planet, wherever. But but what's so sad is the human consciousness, not higher consciousness, consciousness is treating the body as though it was a BMW. The reality is it's a Maserati with all the bells and whistles. They just haven't discovered them yet. so that we have the ability to teleport, to astral travel, to be telepathic, to be channelers. We have that capacity. We just don't know it, and we aren't reaching for it and using it. And have you done what we might call remote viewing in this state? Oh, sure. On on the website, there's a whole series of um, remote viewing meditations that I did with people. I took them all out of body. We went to lots of different places, and then we came back. It's all on uh, com. remote viewing. Excellent. It was, wow. was a lot of fun. But I'll, I'll, I'll let Mark have his show back. I'm sorry. You, you hit yeah. something. I, well, had to I, say something I, about. I kind of <laughs> took over a bunch of questions. Sorry about that, Mark. I, I owe you 20 bucks, I think. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, just, we'll just add that to... Uh, you know, my uh, a double pay that I've been receiving from uh, Blog Talk. And... Ah, okay. Well, I'll just take it out of my. Go I'll just take it, it out of my salary. We'll be good. <laughs> but um, you know, we're you know, I don't know. We have about five minutes left. Uh, you know, um, maybe both of you could uh, yeah, just give us a you know your quick. Uh, views of any new directions in ufology and you know, pl- plug uh, websites and shows again and you know kind of wrap up a, uh, the night and you know we had a great time and uh, tonight I hope we you know just got people people's minds off of you know the plague situation and uh, made people more aware so uh, you know is there uh, you know, Zelia, have you uh, noticed any new uh, directions ufology is taking? I'm I'm tentatively hopeful. Um, I guess I'll say that you know, not even just ufology, but every branch of the paranormal is kind of starting to move towards looking at the similarities between each of these different fields. Um, I, I really think that you know, the more you look at the evidence the harder it is to ignore the fact that there are definitely patterns between these perceived different types of phenomena. And so I think that the more we can as researchers and investigators really study that connection, um, the closer, closer we'll get really to trying to understand what's behind these manifestations of these, you know, some apparently different types of phenomena and really start to understand what the phenomenon is itself. So that's, like I said, tentatively hopeful that we're moving towards that. Okay. And how about you, Steve? Uh, yeah, I think I think she put it very well. Um, I, uh, you know, I was uh, came through a time when I discovered John Keel, man, and I was 
I was sort of worshiping at the Church of John Keel, and I went to the 1976 <laughs> MUFON Symposium uh, in Ann Arbor, Michigan. Dr. Hynek was there. And uh, I was, you know, it's like I'm the, I'm the guy that got the religion, and I'm knocking on the door with the pamphlets and telling people that it's paranormal, that's connected. And they're looking at me like, I, I like, and I'm an insurance salesman, and it's 1130, and they want to go to bed, you know. So, uh, yes, I do see, I mean, there's still a, a lot of division here and there, but more and more people have, and, and John Keel, uh, thanks to our, your efforts having us on the show, Zelie and I, and Brent Rains, who's coming on your show, has been kind of rediscovered. He was forgotten for a while, and uh, he was being, uh, there's some negative things saying about him, but he's uh, enjoying a resurgence. Even David Politis, I heard him from his own lips say, John Keel was ahead of his times. And that was the, the missing 411 guy, David Politis. Nick Redford said something similar in one of his recent books. So anyway, thank you for having us both on. This is just an absolute blast. And you guys are great. Oh, yeah, this was yeah. so fun. Thank you again. Yeah, and um, when, how, how do people oh. uh, uh, get, uh, listen to your shows and archives, YouTube channels? Uh, we're on Facebook, of course. Uh, uh, we're both on the Paranormal UK Radio Network. Check, click on Podbean, and uh, I'm uh, just uh, uh, what am I? This high strangeness factor. I'm not just another tinfoil hat. That's Celia, <laughs> and, and yep, she wisely me. named her her YouTube uh, 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 channel the same. So you know, if I if I named my two things, if I had two things and named them differently, I'd forget one of them. <laughs> and Matt Mullins, military X Files. Yeah, and, and watch for uh, Zelia occasionally on my show. Oh, yeah. That's always a fun time when I get to co-host. It's just a highlight of the high of being on the High Strangers Factor. It's just such a fun time every time. You always have such amazing guests, too. So. Well, that's good. Well, oh, so do you. I mean, you're the, one of the few, few shows I can listen to because I'm not on it. You know, I, I don't <laughs> listen to myself. But, uh, both of you are in high demand. So... so says uh, something about you know your scholarship and thank you do, do you have any upcoming appearances or is that just everything's on the back burner because of you know the virus situation uh, yeah just well, both, and I were gonna yeah. we're gonna go to make a pilgrimage to Butler uh, the yeah. paranormal in Pennsylvania, but that's uh, that's been moved. But we'll both be in Van Meter in the end of September. Yes, that's okay, probably awesome. for certain. Okay, so uh, uh, when I have a couple of other events, but I don't know if they're gonna, gonna go on or not. Okay, uh, it, it's at least w- with Van Meter in September, there's a good chance that. Uh, that you know the, the the craziness will be uh, over by then. Ho- hopefully, that will get, get people a chance to actually get together with the family and uh, get get together uh, out there and uh, meet with you too. Okay, uh, you know Barbara said we're down to about a minute. Uh, Barbara, do you want to put me on mute and you can wrap up the show? And I just want to th- thank you so, so much, uh, Zelia and Steve, for being our uh, fantastic guest tonight. Yeah, well, thank you, oh, again. Thank you everybody. It was a great time. I'm going to have to 
Mark's not supposed to say, put me on mute and then keep talking. But, but we will talk about that later. Uh, thanks, everybody, for being with us. Hope you enjoyed the show as much as I did. Hope you learned as much as I did. And we'll be looking for you tomorrow night with Mary Joyce. And then Friday, uh, we have another show. So check out the calendar and check out the YouTube channel. If you like what you listen to, please subscribe. We love collecting those numbers. Good night now.